0: Glad you are here with us, and uh, if you're watching online, glad you're glad you're there and downstairs as well at F uh, at F3. Have um, have you have you ever read uh, the classic epic adventure by Homer called uh, The Odyssey? Have have you read that thing? Um, it is one of the oldest works of literature that is still read today. Um, uh, with, uh, with a lot of interest. It is this epic journey of uh, the king of Ithaca, uh, Odysseus, as he was returning back from the Trojan Wars. And uh, if you remember, the, the, it's a ten year journey where he has to uh, uh, fight off the Cyclops, the one-eyed monster, the Cyclops, or the, the alluring um, songs of the sirens that were alluring him to shipwreck. Uh, or the sea monsters, uh, uh, Scylla and uh, uh, Charybdis, Uh, all these different intriguing things, a 10-year journey, this epic story of Odyssey. People love a fascinating, epic adventure like that. Well, we're studying the book of Acts, and the second to the last chapter of Acts, Acts 27 is where we're at today, And it is an epic adventure of the high seas, uh, a drama at its best. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 27, Acts chapter 27. Luke, you'll remember, uh, has written two volumes. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and this um, uh, story of the early church, the Acts of the Apostles, which is really the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's wrapping up this massive two-volume work, And in this chapter, he infuses this this story of this high sea adventure. And and he could have included so many things that he wrote, uh, that he didn't write about as he um, had all this information about the early church. Why he chose this whole chapter to be devoted to this, this epic journey of the Apostle Paul, I'm not sure. I've got my ideas as we'll share at the end. I sometimes wonder, he's writing this to a friend called Theophilus, and maybe he thought, you know, everybody loves a good adventure story. And maybe Theophilus is getting a little bored here at the, at the second of the last chapter of this two-volume work. So I'm going to throw in an adventurous story that's going to hold his attention. Because no doubt Theophilus and Paul and all these other people had read Homer's Odyssey. So Acts chapter 27 Luke has firsthand experience of this, so he's writing with great detail. And here it goes, verse 1. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Now, remember, Paul has been in jail in Caesarea for over two years now. Um, trumped up charges. He's, nothing has, none of those charges has stuck, but he's not been acquitted, and he's appealed uh, his case to the Caesar. So Festus said, "You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go." And so they were waiting for a, a ship to come and, and um, dock there at Caesarea, get Paul on it, and take him off to Italy, back to Rome, where he would be tried before Caesar. And he's being accompanied by a guy by the name of Justus, a, a Roman centurion, and there was other prisoners, and they're heading back to um, Italy. And embarking in an Ad, um, Adramatine ship, which was about to set sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. So here's, here's the journey. It's about 1,800 to 2,000 miles from Caesarea to Rome. Uh, normally it would take maybe four weeks of journeying the, the seas, the Mediterranean Sea, that was, the, that was where they were heading. Verse 3 says, the next day we put into Sidon. So the first stop about 60 miles away, Sidon. And Julius, that Roman centurion, treated Paul with consideration, allowed him actually to go meet his friends and receive care. This is a little aside thing, but if you ever want to follow it up, Luke, when he writes about Roman centurions, now Luke was a Gentile, but when he writes about Roman centurions, it seems like he always writes about them favorably. And this is another case where Justice, this Roman centurion in charge of these prisoners being taken to Rome, most of them probably to be executed, he looks with favor upon Paul and at Sidon allows him to go see his friends, a, a church that's there and be ministered to, be cared for. They leave Sidon, verse 4, from there they put out to sea and it says they sail under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary some of our translations will say they sailed under the lee of the leeward winds as opposed to the westward winds um, The the westward winds were pretty ferocious it says that they are having a little bit of uh, concern the winds were contrary so the safest place of course instead of cutting south of Cyprus, would be to follow and hug the, the shoreline and go in between Cyprus and Asia Minor. So they were more protected by the winds. That's what they did. Verse 5 says, And when they had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilician Pamphylia, we, of course Luke again is writing us. we landed at Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. So the, so the Andromedaean ship, uh, which would be up in Asia Minor, it was going a different way. So they um, got off that boat and got uh, an Alexandrian ship. Now, an Alexandrian ship, th- this might be a picture of what one may have looked like. They were massive um, commerce uh, ships. They were um, predominantly hauling grain From Egypt to Italy Um, in fact during this right at the same time period Italy in various places of Italy were were, um, dealing with famines and uh, so they depended on these grain ships uh, bringing uh, these grains these food supplies up to Italy so here's this Alexandrian grain ship they're massive ships Uh, two rudders, um, maybe 200 feet long. We'll see uh, after a little bit, there's 276 people aboard this thing. Um, So Justice the Centurion uh, commandeers or gets this Alexandrian um, grain ship bound for Italy, and everybody boards it. And verse 7 says, when we had sailed slowly for a good many days with difficulty, we arrived at Sindus, Since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we then sailed under the shelter of Crete off uh, Somalini, and with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So they're coming to to Crete there at Fair Havens, and that's where they set anchor. Uh, you pick up a little bit here. Again, we sailed for a good many days with difficulty. The winds were contrary, it said. Uh, Verse 8 again. With difficulty, we sailed to this this harbor called Fair Havens and set anchor there. So where have they been? Um, They're about halfway through their journey. Uh, Halfway through their journey, they're now on the south side of the island of Crete, At this little place called Fair Havens. It's been a bit of a difficult journey, but they've made it. But it's going to get a whole lot worse starting right now. And verse 9 says, When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous since even the fast was already over. Now, what's that? Well, it's I believe this is talking about the Day of Atonement, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which would have been maybe late September, early October, possibly, late as that. The Day of Atonement, that fast was already over. It's a, it's a, it's a time uh, indicator. And that meant for seafarers on the Mediterranean at that time, uh, you, you really didn't want to go much farther. Uh, it was well known that somewhere between mid-September to mid-November that it was a very dangerous time to sail the seas, the storms, the unpredictability of the winds. And so it, it was rare that a ship would, uh, would be sailing during that time. And definitely after November 14th, for the next four months till about mid-March, you, you never sailed the seas because of the unpredictability of the wind. It's just too dangerous. So this commerce and this trade would be picked up uh, later in the spring. So they're looking for a place to maybe winter uh, because it just wasn't worth the risk going to uh, Rome. So they're at Fair Havens. And when a considerable time had passed, again, verse 9, the voyage was dangerous since it was this time of year. Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but of our very lives. Now, Paul, by this time, had logged in, some scholars believe, at least 3,000 nautical miles. He'd gone on three missionary journeys. he had crossed the seas. This guy was a veteran traveler of the seas, And I think he's just sharing his humble opinion. Hey, guys, you know, it's late into the fall. Um, We keep going much farther. This is not going to look good. And he's speaking as an expert traveler. Well, verse 11, the centurion was, however, more persuaded by the pilot and the, the captain or the owner of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. So because the harbor there at Fair Havens was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to the sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor, another harbor there of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there at Phoenix. If they could get there, which was about maybe 40 miles or so from Fair Havens, it would be a short little jaunt, maybe a day. Um, but it had its risks, and Paul had warned them, But they said, you know, this is not the best harbor for the winter. Let's make it to Phoenix. Um, Verse 13 says, that next morning when a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete close to the shore. They're going to make it to Phoenix. That was their goal. Well, good luck. Verse 14, the epic journey begins in, um, with all diligence, here, verse fourteen. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind, called Eirequelo, or if King James says Eirekriden. The the actual Greek word for this violent wind is typhoonikos, which we get what word from typhoon, typhoonikos, a violent wind. Uh, some of our translations call it a a northeaster. Now, again, typically the winds were westward. That's what they'd been battling, but as they leave Fair Havens, a sudden northeaster hit them. A violent rushing wind. It was well known. It was coined this this. It's it's a. It, um, more of a Latin term, but a uroquelo. It was what the, what the what these seamen called a northeaster. This was a monstrous wind <laughs> that began to blow. Verse 15 says, And when the ship was caught in it, could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along by it. They, they could do nothing about it. They were caught in this thing. And running under the shelter of a small island called Colada, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control, and they're referring there to the little dinghy, the little um, uh, like a, a safety um, vessel that that would be um, pulled along typically by these great grain ships. So it's it's dragging them. We got to put this thing on on our on our ship. So they verse 17 they hoisted this thing up, supposing. Or, and, and then supported cables and undergirding the ship, fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Sirtis. They let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. So they're being pushed along here by, these, by this Euracridon, this Euracuelo, these violent rushing winds, That's nor'easter. They can't do anything about it. They take the dinghy, they strap it on, and then it says they undergird the vessel, they undergird the ship. What these vessels had with them, uh, more like emergency um, uh, cables that they would keep just in case they found themselves in one of these things because these weren't uh, um, necessarily well-built ships, and in this... um, ferocious storms and high seas it would start pulling apart they would start taking water on and so they took these cables and they basically reinforced um, from uh, uh, bow to stern they and 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 of course the width of it as well they basically wrapped uh, these ships with these cables and that's what it meant here in verse 17 they're undergirding the ship the last thing they wanted to do and this was their fear they're going to keep this thing heading um, uh, south, uh, that would be southwest from the northeast, southwest, and run into the sands, the, the, the quicksands of Sirta, which was off the North African coast. This thing was being pushed along to modern-day Libya, basically. And that was, that was a death uh, notice for seamen. If you hit the sands of Sirta, it's over. Especially with a heavy grain ship. You'd be stuck, you'd be bashed to pieces, and there'd be no place to go but down under. That's their greatest fear, that they might run aground on the shadows of Sirtis. Well, verse 18. The next day as they were being violently storm-tossed, they begin to jettison the cargo. So they're zigzagging around. They don't know where they are. They're at the mercy of the winds. They start throwing off the cargo. The third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, with no small storm assailing us, from then on, all hope of being saved was gradually abandoned. Humanly speaking, th- there, it was over. It was over. Um, the storm had lasted for many days now, and they navigated, of course, by the stars. Well, it's been cloudy, rainy, storm-tossed skies and seas. They don't know where they are. Um, They're being tossed about, the violence of the storm, the wind. They're at the mercy of nature. And their life is passing before their eyes, and slowly they all lose hope. I have in my library an old book by William John Conabere, entitled the, um, the Life and the Epistles of St. Paul. He wrote this in 1856. I've got actually an 1877 edition. And in the 1850s, Conabere, uh wrote this massive volume about Paul and his travels and, and as he wrote his epistles. But in the 1850s, of course, and he was a British scholar, in the 1850s, um, Great Britain owned the seas, right? They they were the greatest naval power. And during the time as he writes this book, he interviews um, British naval captains who, will, who were uh, well-versed in the seas of the Mediterranean. They, they knew all this stuff. So he's, he's interviewing them and in writing about the, the things he's learning from these British sea captains. And it really confirms everything that Luke writes here in Acts 27 of this time of year, of the violence of the wind, of the sudden northeasters that come, and and all this, and the hopelessness if you get to the sands of circumstances. All this stuff is verified. But in his um, his 1856 work, he writes this. No one who has never been in a leaky ship in a continual gale can know what has suffered under such circumstances. Anybody here ever been in a leaky boat, in a severe gale of storm. He writes, The strain both of mind and body, the incessant demand for the labor of all the crew, the terror of the passengers, the hopelessness working at the pumps, the laboring of the ship's frame and cordage, the driving of the storm, the benumbing effect of the cold and the wet make up a sense of no ordinary confusion, of anxiety and fatigue. But in the present case, these evils were much agra- uh, aggravated by the continual overcrowding, uh, overclouding of the sky, which prevented the navigators from taking the necessary observations of the heavenly bodies. Now, in a modern ship, 1850s, in a modern ship, however dark the weather might be, there would always be a light in the monocle, and the ship's course would always be known. But in ancient vessels... When neither sun nor stars were seen for many days, the case would be far more hopeless. It was impossible to know how near they might be to the most dangerous coast. And yet the worst danger was that which arose from the leaky state of the vessel. Now this was so bad that at length they gave up all hope of being saved, thinking that nothing could prevent her foundering. And then to this despair was added a further suffering from want of food. A consequence of the injury done in the provisions and the impossibility of preparing any regular meals. If you've never been on a leaky ship in a typhoonicus, you don't have a clue what these guys are going through. It's basically what Connaber was writing in 1856. All hope was lost. And it's at that point, in the moment of greatest despair, that the Apostle Paul steps up. Verse 21. After the men had gone for a long time without food, and that was either because they were working so hard, keeping the ship upright, or, or, or everything they ate, they lost immediately. Paul stood up before them and he said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Yeah, right. I told you so. Then you would have spared yourselves this dam- damage and loss. But now I urge you, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Then he explains You see, last night an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and he told me, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So, Keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it'll happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, he says, we're going to run aground on some island. There's Paul standing up. You know, God had communicated to Paul back in the jail in Caesarea, in Jerusalem, something very similar. You're going to go and testify before the Caesar. You're going to get to Rome because that's my plan for you, Paul. God's sovereign plan was being unfolded. And that angel came. They are all lost hope, but he comes and gives Paul this special message. You're going to testify before Caesar, and I'm going to throw in a little grace. I'm going to spare all the people on this ship, though the ship itself is going to run aground and be lost. So, man, take courage. Twice he says that. Keep up your courage. Verse 27, well, on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors, sensed they were maybe approaching land, there was something, a a sixth sense about sailors. They kind of, whether it was the sound of the, the waves or whatever it was, they knew that there was land nearby. So verse 28, they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. And a short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Now, fearing that we would be dashed against rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. Well, in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down, that dinghy that they had wrapped up, pretended that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. And Paul said to the centurion to the soldiers, Hey, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Justice the centurion is now finally believing Paul. By the way, in Paul, back there in verse 21, Paul said, you know, you guys should have listened to me. I don't think he was doing that in a malicious way like, eh, you, you, know, you should have listened to me. I think he was simply establish himself and his authority so that when he said, and the angel of God came to me and said this, so take courage, they would believe him. Well, justice did. They cut the ropes of the little dinghy so they couldn't escape on that. And by the way, this is another little thing to just throw out there. There's so many of those things. but You know, God had said to, to Paul, and, and here too, um, you're, you're going you're gonna to make it to Rome. And I'm going to spare all the lives of those with you. But here, the warning is, if they don't stay in the ship, if they try to escape, they're going to be lost, and all of you will. To me, this is a a fascinating little story of the convergence of, of the sovereignty of God that's at work, that he has ordained the passage to Rome safely, And yet the responsibility of mankind, if you don't stay in the ship, you're all going to be lost. Well, I thought you said, you already promised graciously you're all going to get them to Rome. Well, that is if they all stay in the boat. So there's this fun little interplay, I think, between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of the men. Stay in the boat. Well, verse 33, just before dawn, Paul again speaks. He urges them to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense. You've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now, I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all, and he broke it and began to eat. And so they were all encouraged, and they all ate some food themselves. And altogether, there were 276 of us on board. So once again, there's Paul taking the leadership. All right, guys, take courage. Now, get some food in you. We're all going to survive. Not a hair of your head is going to, going to be lost. You need some food. You've got to be strengthened. God's going to be working here, so get ready. Verse 38, and when they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. There goes their cargo. And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land. But they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So, cutting loose the anchors, those four anchors, they left them in the sea. And by the way, I read something very interesting. This is, by the way, off the now they're off the coast of Malta, the little island of Malta. Um, we have a, a member here, uh, Ron Scaluna, who is uh, his family is from Malta. And he and his wife, Sue, uh, back in April, went to Malta to visit their relatives on this little island. I read something f- quite fascinating uh, as people have tried to find, can we find this shipwreck ever, anywhere? And um, they have found a, a gigantic um, anchor uh, in in the deep off of Malta coast. And the stories are that in years past, uh, two other anchors in a similar location had been found and they were cut up and used for various things uh, by the locals years ago. But they still have in possession one of these anchors. Now, whether this is from that ship or not, it would be in the same location that uh, this ship w- would have gone down. Uh, but anyway, they, um, they're, here's the plan. They cut loose the anchors. They're going to make for that beach. Um, cut the loose of the anchors. They let them in the sea at the same time untie the ropes that held the rudders. They hoisted up the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar, ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. So the soldiers planned to kill all the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. But the centurion, good old Justice, wanted to spare Paul's life, and he kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered that those who could swim jump overboard first, get to the land, and the rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship that was now breaking up. And the last f- little phrase says, and in this way, everyone reached land in safety. Um, boy, where do you begin here on applying this sea adventure, this epic odyssey of the Apostle Paul 2,000 years ago to our lives? I start with the question, why did Luke include this? I kind of tongue-in-cheek said at the beginning that maybe Theophilus was getting a little bored, so, hey, now's a great time to throw in a great sea adventure like the Odyssey, like Homer's Odyssey. Um, Why did Luke include this? I think, real quickly, a couple reasons. Number one, he wanted to re-emphasize God's sovereign hand in bringing about the plan that God had for Paul. God sovereignly was in charge. And when all hope was lost, when all hope was lost, God's plan was still being an operative. And he communicates to the Apostle Paul, and Paul communicates encouragement to the other people, basically saying, God is gracious, and we're all going to survive because that's God's plan. Keep up your courage, man. I believe that it will turn out exactly like I've been told. Paul trusted the word of the Lord. Paul trusted the sovereign hand of God to accomplish his plans to get him to Rome, get him to Italy, and testify before Caesar. Nothing was going to get in the way of a sovereign God. Not man's plans, not Satan's plans, not the violent nature, the blowing of the Northeasters. Nothing was going to get in the way of God because God was supremely sovereign over it all. I think there's another maybe reason why Luke included this, and that is that just maybe as a reminder that God has never promised to spare us from the storms of life. Paul, Dr. Luke, Aristarchus, his friend from Thessalonica, these solid believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, their life was passing before their eyes. This was a violent storm. This was not a fun journey. They were not being spared from the difficulties and the trials and tribulations of this journey. And God has never promised to spare us from the trials of life. But he has promised to walk with us in the midst of them. And Acts 27 is a wonderful example of that. The storms, the seas of life were rough, violent, and devastating but God was there in the midst of it the children of God are not free from the suffering of this world you know in 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 Paul gives a whole list of things that happened to him he says in verse 23 are they servants of Christ I speak as if insane but I'm more so in far more labors and far more imprisonments beaten times without number often in danger of death five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And add chapter 27, number four, because this was written before that. So four times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, treading water a night and a day after one of those shipwrecks. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, from dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, from the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches." Uh, it's quite a resume of suffering. The children of God are not free from suffering. Uh, we we've said it here throughout the years, uh, various times, but it's a it's a it's a truism that is worth repeating. God is not so much interested in our happiness as he is in our holiness. See what would be the happy thing? What a winter at Fair Havens and. They're on Crete and just make it through the winter and then in the nice spring weather we'll go to Rome. Um, But God is far more interested in developing us, in changing us. So why would Paul subject himself to such pain, to such suffering? Why would he subject himself to five times being given 39 lashes by the Jews and all these shipwrecks and imprisonment. Why, why go through that? It's like, I don't need this in my life. Why go through it? Why does God allow us to go through the trials and tribulations of life? Let me mention three things. Three things of why we endure sufferings. First of all, it's to be perfected by Christ. God is working his his, his forming, his fashioning of Christ's likeness into our life and, and suffering and trials and the difficulties of life, the shipwrecks and all the other things that happen are the things and the tools that God uses. In that same Second Corinthians passage, after Paul lists all the things that happened to him, he writes this, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness." Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. Hmm. I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distress, persecutions, difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul said all those things have a wonderful way of just stripping away all the self-centeredness of my life exposing my weaknesses and my total inability. All hope is lost, except I've got a sovereign God who's working out his plan, and so I'm going to trust him. And in that weakness, Christ's power reigns. This is what James says. Remember James 1? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, internal transformation of of power, of strength, conformity into the image of Christ. Holiness, the righteousness of Christ, fashioned and shaped in our life, the trials and the tribulations and the struggles and the, 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 the sorrows that buffet our journey on the seas of life we count it all joy, Paul says, I, I'm well content with it all. Because through that I'm being perfected. I, 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 Christ is, is doing his work in my life. Second of all, not only to be perfected by Christ, but we endure suffering, he says, so that we're rewarded by Christ. Rewarded by Christ. See, it's not just about this life. If all, if all it was was this life, Well, let's shoot for a little more happiness. But it's not just about this life. This is the proving ground for the life to come. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, Paul is saying we keep our eye on the prize, the upward call of God. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's not just about living a comfortable life here. In fact, it's not anything about that. Living life on this earth has nothing to do with how happy I am. It has everything to do to honor him and the fact that one day we will stand before him and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Peter will put it this way. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof, the proving, the the refining work of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when Christ returns. There will be praise, glory, and honor given to those who endure, who are allowing God to perfect them in the midst of trials, who are enduring through this, keeping their eyes on the eternal goal that one day we will be with him. And it will all be worth it when we see Jesus. And he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. To be rewarded and hear those words of Christ. That was powerful motivation in the early church. There's a third reason why Paul endured shipwrecks and suffering and beatings and distresses of life. I think it was so that he could continue to proclaim the name of Christ. Continue to proclaim this gospel message. That Christ suffered and died, and he rose again to offer us eternal life. That God so loved the world, he gave his son. That's the message of Acts. It's the triumph of the gospel. It's the unfolding story of how the gospel triumphed. How people like Paul were willing to go on an epic journey, almost lose their life, time and time again, so that they could proclaim to the world the love of God. It was very personal to Paul. He wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, I persecuted, I was a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorant in in, in my unbelief. And the grace of our Lord is more than abundant with faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. I was loved by God and I didn't deserve it and overcome by that truth of the gospel Paul said, most gladly, I am well content, no matter what comes. This is not about my life and how comfortable I can be on this earth. It's about his glory and reigning with him one day. Ephesians chapter 2, he wrote similarly, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Loved by God. And Paul was so enamored with this truth that he was loved by God. And he had a story to proclaim to a dying world. He was willing to endure anything so he could proclaim this good news, the name of Jesus Christ, to a lost world. He knew God was good. He knew God loved him. The 19th century poet John Greenliff Whittier put it in his poem, The Eternal Goodness. He said it this way, yet in the maddening maze of things and tossed by storm and flood, to one fixed trust my spirit clings. I know that God is good. And each one of us is on our epic journey, our own epic journey. Each one of us are traveling our own storm-tossed seas and they come and go. and, And they're not very pleasant many times. And though we don't run into any one-eyed cyclops or the alluring songs of the sirens or the sea monsters of Scylla and Charybdis, everyone sitting in this room has had their own struggles and issues and trials in life. Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, Justice the Centurion, all 276 of those people They did not expect to end up shipwrecked and swimming for their lives on an unknown island, but it happened. They began their journey expecting safe passage. It didn't go so well, but God's promises were true. And as we'll see next week, they arrived safely. The trials and tribulations that we're all facing, it's real, they're painful, and at times none of us want to go through them. But we have a promise from the Lord that we will arrive safely on the shore. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we will. Have you put your faith and trust in the Savior, in the Deliverer, the one who stepped from his throne in glory? shed his blood, paid for our sins, that which was separating us from all eternity, from a loving Heavenly Father. He bridged that gap, and he will pilot our ship safely to shore because he's the sovereign God. And as the Apostle Paul said, and I believe it sincerely with all my heart, he'll do what he says. Let's pray. Father, the saying is very true that we may not know what tomorrow holds. but We can sure know who holds tomorrow. A sovereign God who is full of love and compassion and kindness for we who are undeserving. May we put our trust in you as we are on our epic journey of life. Not to be spared from the difficulties of life, but to be conformed more into the image of Christ, to keep our eye on the prize of the upward call, and in the meantime, have the privilege of proclaiming the name of Jesus to this world. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.